This is Chuck Wolf. You're listening to WPKN 89.5 FM. Listen to supported radio. And this is a panel that I helped to organize that explains the breadth and depth and power of emotional intelligence in our lives. It includes several panelists, and you'll hear about them as I participate in this Harvard alumni-sponsored panel that we've included as part of my radio show over the next couple of times I'm on the year, including today. Today is part one. Next time I'm on the year will be part two. Enjoy. We, we welcome people of all stripes. It's a very open organization. Um, you don't have to have gone to HBS or even Harvard to participate in our events. Um, so I uh, encourage everybody to stay in touch and uh, I'd love to see you at future events. Um, this event is going to be moderated by Chuck Wolf. I, I've known Chuck for a while. He's been a member of the club, and I know he's going to be a fantastic moderator tonight. Uh, I'd like to um, tell you some things about him from some prepared remarks. Uh, Charles Wolf is CEO of Charles J. Wolf Associates, a leadership consulting company. Chuck works with leaders helping them use emotional intelligence to generate positive culture, engagement, and trust. Chuck's work in organization behavior in Harvard's executive programs and his strategic alliance with Yale President Peter Salovey and his colleagues led to his Emotion Roadmap, a creative process that enhances people's emotional intelligence abilities. Chuck is a coach, speaker, consultant, trainer for prestigious clients like Yale University, Disney, Microsoft, the U.S. Navy, Marriott, Kaiser Permanente, Aetna, and UTC. In 2018, the International Coaching Federation selected Chuck as the expert to write about coaching and emotions. In 2019, Chuck worked as a faculty member for Dan Goldman's coaching certification program. Chuck is an active member of the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence, um, and he has done interviews with many other experts, including members of this panel. As a volunteer, Chuck um, has created and hosts a public radio talk show on the, um, the Emotion Roadmap, a show that helps and teaches listeners to manage emotions and relationships. Chuck serves on the advisory and training boards for the International Congress of Emotional Intelligence. And most importantly, Chuck has helped us organize this panel tonight. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thanks very much. I wanted to just simply say that I'm interested in uh, tonight's uh, conversation in part because of something similar to what um, Dan Goldman wrote about very recently. Uh, if you haven't seen it, Dan wrote uh, about what we still to get wrong about emotional intelligence in the Harvard Business Review article recently. And one of the concerns I had, if you read the description, is that we basically have a very narrow definition of what we think emotional intelligence is. Many people simply think it's being nice to another person. It's being respectful. It's being tactful. It's being thoughtful. It's being empathic when somebody's had a loss of some kind. And it is. It's all of those things, but it's so much more. And we've always had an interest in emotions. The emotions associated with love, with power, with justice, with conflict, with influence, family, work, community, they're all well known to us. But actually how emotional intelligence plays a role in how we respond and behave, well, that's not so clear. And I hope to make that much more clear tonight with the panelists that I've uh, gathered together tonight. Colleagues and friends uh, we have with us, uh, uh, Carrie Chernus, Helen Reese, and Richard Boyatzis, all who are members of what's called the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence and in Organizations. And Carrie, who's a co-founder of that organization with Dan Goldman, will say a little bit more about that a little later on. Uh, but as we get ready, I just want to mention that we've been talking about emotions for a long time. 
even as early as Aristotle, and I'd just like to read, this is a quote that Aristotle is known to have said, anybody can become angry, it is easy. But, be, but to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power and is not easy. So even as early as Aristotle, people were writing about emotions. But in the 1990, there was two psychologists, one's Peter Salovey, who's now Yale president, and his colleague and friend, Jack Mayer, a University of New Hampshire psychologist and professor there, they discovered that we have what they call emotional abilities. So when we say what Aristotle said about anger, it's possible that some people can be angry with the right person in the right way at the right time because they're more skilled at it. They have more ability than somebody else. What these authors said, Salovey and Mayer, was that there are emotional abilities, the ability to identify, use, and understand emotions. And they wrote about it. But it wasn't really popularized until Dan Goleman wrote his book in 1995 called Emotional Intelligence. And as a subtitle, it said, why it might matter more than IQ. And at the time, it got a lot of attention because for those of you that might have read the book or heard about it, there was a book called The Bell Curve, written by a psychologist and a, a political commentator. And it was a very controversial book. And it was very tough to read because it basically said, if you don't have a high IQ, you're not going to do well in life. And here was Dan Goleman talking about what, in some ways, Peter and Jack had discovered, but other things he had, he had learned and written about as well. And so because the bell curve was out there saying IQ is all that's important or most important, and Dan saying, oh, wait a minute, there's another intelligence out there that might be more important, it got some attention at that time. Got a lot of attention, in fact. But it also wasn't just because the bell curve was out there, it was because Dan's a really good writer. And Dan captured the world's imagination with his book. And a lot of people got really excited about that. And then from there, a lot of things started to happen. But even with most new ideas, when a new idea emerges, it's often popular for one to five years, maybe even 10. Remember, that was 1995. 1995. And now we're in 2021. And we're still talking about it. Not only we're talking about it, but interest is soaring. And why is that the case? In a forum I belong to, I just recently joined on Facebook, just called Emotional Intelligence. Someone asked a question, so if I get better at emotional intelligence, what will be different? That was a great question, so I started to answer it. I said, well, you'll be better at parenting, you'll be better at leadership, you'll be a better teammate. And then as I started to write, I couldn't stop. You'll be better at relationships, at conflict, at decision-making, at strategy. I mean, really, it's almost what wouldn't you be better at if you were more in control of your own emotions and you understood the things that you do and the things that you say and how it impacts other people's emotions. How could you not be better at almost everything, really? And so I've brought this panel together to help us to explore what this is all about. And I'll say a little bit about each one of them as we get to some of the things that they're going to talk about. One of the things that I'll tell you about Carrie Chernus is that he's just written a book. I just finished it. For last year it was published called Leading with Feeling. And he uncovered through a, a series of interviews and research with a colleague of his, nine strategies for how people lead. And he didn't go in telling people that, I'm gonna interview you about emotional intelligence. 
but he can tell you more about it. But he did go in and ask, tell me about emotionally challenging situations you might have faced and how you dealt with them. And he teased out some really interesting strategies. And for Helen Reese, one of the things that she's done is she's done a world of wonderful research in the area of empathy. And again, just as a separate standalone subject, empathy is also trending. So many people want to know so much more about empathy. And I think Helen's one of the world's greatest authorities on empathy. And she actually has shown some actual research that demonstrates that patients get better. There are better patient outcomes when healthcare professionals and practitioners are more skilled at empathy. And Richard Boyatzis, well known for his early work in the field of competencies, and then worked and partnered with Dan Goldman to write the emotional and social competency inventory to measure emotional and social competencies. But Richard also wrote a book recently called Helping People Change that has this wonderful idea about how to coach others with compassion instead of coaching them for compliance. And he'll share that and some of his really wonderful ideas around intentional change theory. And for myself, I'll be talking to you about emotion, the emotion roadmap, which is this idea that all of us can become better, no matter what our skill levels are, at dealing more effectively with other people's emotions, being able to influence and motivate other people more effectively, and also to have more inner peace because we're able to be able to control more and manage our own emotions more ourselves. And I've asked each of them to tell you a little bit more about their work when they talk about their work, about how you can find out more. Because tonight we won't have enough time to talk a lot in depth about any of these ideas, but I hope it encourages everybody that's on this call with us to want to learn more, to want to do more, become better at emotional intelligence and improve in the ways you can. The world's in a tough place, as all of you know, for lots of reasons. And some pretty unusual reasons, but still lots of challenges. And we're facing them all the time, really. We've had challenges throughout the world's history. But I think the better we uh, become more adept at emotional intelligence, the better we'll be able to respond to those challenges. So let me go to, uh, to Carrie Chernus first. I want to introduce Carrie. And I want to just uh, say a little bit about Carrie. I want to read you a little bit about Carrie. In, in talking about Carrie, I again, I thought about uh, Carrie's work is with leaders, and he's done a lot of things, really, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But in terms of an anecdote to share about some of my work with leaders, I want to tell you about a woman named Masha, who is a senior vice president in a large insurance company, and I was asked to work with for a compliance issue. She was having a rough time with some of her relationships with people who did the support work, the backroom work for a sales organization that she was in charge of. I actually assessed her. There are assessments that measure emotional intelligence. And one of those assessments is called the Mesquite. That's the Mayor Salve Caruso Emotional Intelligence Test and found that she was actually very skilled in her emotional abilities. She had high levels of intellectual empathy, understanding why emotions happen. She had really high levels of emotional empathy, felt what other people felt. But over time, as I gained her trust, I realized that she felt that the people in the back room operation that didn't report to her, she wanted to report to her. And so she was cold and demanding, but she wasn't very friendly, even though she had the potential and actually in her sales organization was known for really warm and effective relationship skills. Once I was able to work with her and help her to understand how important it might be to be able to be, use those relationship skills with her workforce, she actually decided that she would go to her peer who she had some struggles with. 
didn't like, but asked if it would be okay if she started to meet with the support teams. And the woman said, sure, sounds like a good idea. And over time, she developed a wonderful relationship with the support teams, actually got friendly with the peer who had been a challenge before, and within a year's time was promoted to president. So my point is that you can learn how to use your emotional intelligence skills, even if it doesn't always come naturally. And now I want to introduce Carrie, who's going to tell you about some of the things he discovered when people are gifted with this already. So let me read you a little bit about Carrie Trennis. Carrie is a PhD and emeritus professor of applied psychology at Rutgers University and co-chair of the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence and in Organizations. He specializes in the areas of emotional intelligence, work stress and burnout, leadership in organizations and planned organizational change. He has published over 60 scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as eight books, including The Emotionally Intelligent Workplace with Dan Goleman, Promoting Emotional Intelligence in Organizations, Guidelines for Practitioners with Mitchell Adler, and The Human Side of Corporate Competitiveness with Daniel Fishman. His most recent book that was published is Leading with Feeling, Nine Strategies for Emotionally Intelligent Leaders with Cornelia Roach. Dr. Chernis also has consulted with many organizations in both the public and private sectors, including American Express, Johnson & Johnson, AT&T, and the United States Office of Personnel Management. So Carrie, you're up. Thanks, Chuck. That was a wonderful introduction, not only to the panel, but also I think for the concept of emotional intelligence in general. Um, so what I'd like to do is to um, take a, a couple of minutes to clarify uh, what we mean by emotional intelligence, and then talk a little bit about what the research says about uh, the relationship between emotional intelligence and leadership effectiveness, and then finish up uh, sharing with you a, a couple of things that we learned from this, the research that Chuck just described. So in terms of, of emotional intelligence, I think Chuck did a good, good job of, of describing uh, what it is. The textbook definition of emotional intelligence is that it's the ability to accurately perceive, understand, and manage our own emotions and those of others. Again, the ability to perceive, understand, and manage our own emotions and those of others. So let me give you an example of, of one of the leaders that we studied, a situation that uh, she described to us, which I think really illustrates um, uh, what emotional intelligence is all about. She uh, is the uh, and was the CEO of a medium-sized uh, engineering and architectural consulting firm. And uh, the firm had been going through some, some very hard times. Um, they had laid off people for the first time in the history of the firm. And so for a number of weeks when she met uh, each Friday with her leadership team, um, the, um, the news was pretty much uniformly bad. And then one week she noticed a change. One of the uh, team members, I guess it was the, uh, the chief financial officer, gave a report that uh, was actually pretty, pretty promising. Um, but when he, he finished, the group uh, almost immediately was ready to move on to another topic. And um, 
when she realized that they were not going to talk about, you know, this, this wonderful news, she said, wait a second, you guys, this is really wonderful. This, this is the first good news we've had in weeks. Let's, let's stop and take a couple of minutes to, you know, talk about why things uh, seem to be looking up. And so that's what they did. And as they were talking about, you know, what they had done to make things start to improve, the whole emotional atmosphere really began to lift. And, and when they moved on to the next topic, that, that positive climate continued. And at the end of the meeting, when the team left that room, um, they, they were feeling much better about the way things were going. And we know from research on emotional contagion, it was in a very short period of time that more positive outlook uh, spread through the entire organization. So what does this have to do with emotional intelligence? Well, first of all, she was using one of the strategies that we identified in our research. And I'll talk more about the research in a minute. And that was she was almost continually monitoring the emotional climate of the meeting. And so when uh, the, the group was moving on to the next topic without any discernible change in the emotional climate, the, uh, the CEO understood that this was really uh, a lost opportunity and that she really should do something to try and get them to go back and talk about the good news. And so that's what she did very skillfully. She said, uh, hey, wait a second, let's, let's, let's talk more about that. Um, so those are the three basic uh, dimensions of emotional intelligence. The ability to accurately perceive emotions, to understand the dynamics, and then to use your emotional intelligence skills to manage and, and often change those emotions. Okay, so that's what emotion, uh, emotional intelligence is. And that particular incident, it seemed to have a very positive effect on the organization, at least in terms of, of motivation. But I know a lot of you, uh, like us, are uh, primarily interested in and, and have to be primarily interested in the bottom line. So what do we know about the relationship between emotional intelligence and leadership and organizational effectiveness? Well, it turns out, I, I like to think in part because of the work of the consortium during the last um, uh, 25 years, that... Um, there has been really a ton of research that's appeared, uh, which shows uh, pretty convincing, convincingly that there's a positive relationship between emotional intelligence and leadership effectiveness. And I, you know, I could spend uh, the whole evening talking about the various studies, but um, what I want to do is just briefly describe one, which I think really, for me at least, kind of nails it. This is a study that was done um, a few years ago. I think it appeared uh, in one of our referee journals in 2018. A group of researchers were interested in looking at all the research that had been done up to that point on the relationship between leadership effectiveness and different kinds of organizations and emotional intelligence. Was there really a positive 
relationship? Did more emotionally intelligent leaders have more effective, uh, were they more effective as leaders? Were their organizations more effective? So as they were going through these studies, they were able to identify 12 different studies that independently looked at the relationship between a leader's emotional intelligence and not the leader's effectiveness, but the effectiveness of the leader's subordinates, their performance. And the question was, did the subordinates uh, perform more effectively if they had a more emotionally intelligent leader? And they used a, a technique that many of you are probably familiar with called meta-analysis to statistically pool the results. And what they found, uh, they, as I said, there were 12 studies. When you pulled them, there were over 2,700 uh, leaders involved in, in, the, uh, in the analysis. And they found that, in fact, there was a very positive relationship between a leader's emotional intelligence and the performance of the, the people that, that that leader supervised. In fact, when they looked at the data more closely, they found that uh, the leader's emotional intelligence accounted for about 23% of the variance in employee performance. And that, that is really huge. I mean, when you think about all the different factors that contribute to uh, an employee's performance in, in an organization, previous experience and where they, you know, uh, were trained and maybe even IQ a little bit, um, to have the leader's emotional intelligence uh, uh, contribute to almost a quarter of the variation. That, I think, is, is very powerful evidence for how important emotional intelligence is. So let me um, very briefly tell you a little bit about the, the research we did. As I said, there was a lot of research and there's still more research accumulating on the relationship between emotional intelligence and leadership effectiveness. And what um, I was interested in um, several years ago was, was a, a very different question, which I think is, is just as important, if not more important, for practitioners, for, for leaders. And that was, how do outstanding leaders use their emotional intelligence to get these very positive results? So we asked a small group of uh, executive coaches, management consultants, to identify outstanding leaders who were not only outstanding, but also were um, seemed to be very effective in managing and using their emotions and those of others. And we ended up with a group of 20, uh, 25 um, uh, mid-level and senior-level uh, executives, evenly divided between men and women, and very diverse in terms of the different kinds of organizations they came from. And we used a technique, an interview technique, um, uh, called a modified behavioral event interview, where we asked them at the beginning of each interview to uh, think of some situation, some incidents, in which they had to use and manage their emotions and the emotions of other people in order to accomplish their goals. And in the end, we ended up with 126 of these incidents. And as we were pouring over the data and analyzing the data, 
what eventually emerged were these nine strategies that Chuck referred to before, and then we mentioned in the, in the title of our book. So let me just describe one of those incidents to you, um, which I think highlights a, a couple of those strategies. By the way, the first strategy is uh, uh, monitoring the emotional climate. A lot of the leaders we, we studied uh, did this quite a bit, in fact, almost continuously. And uh, the, the example I started with uh, is an example of a leader using that, um, that strategy. But in this, the second example, uh, we were interviewing the president of a wholesale uh, beverage um, uh, company and uh, beverage dis distributor. And he described a situation in which he um, was having a very difficult time working with one of their major customers. He would meet with the major customers uh, every year to renegotiate the contract. And he had done that several times with this individual. And somehow every time uh, the president of the company got so flustered and upset and agitated that, um, uh, you know, by, by the end, he came away with a, a really bad contract. This guy knew all the buttons to push. And um, so he was getting ready for his next visit and not looking forward to it, needless to say. And uh, he was having lunch with one of his uh, uh, friends. This was an older executive who had really become kind of uh, a mentor and coach to him. And he was exp uh, describing what he, what he had to do the next week and uh, asked, uh, you know, that this, this uh, other guy, do you have any suggestions? And the guy said, well, why, why do you always have to be the one to go? Well, why don't you ask one of your people to go in your place and let them deal with this guy and, and negotiate the contract? So that's what he did. And uh, when the guy came back, it was by far the best contract they ever had with this customer. Um, that incident, as I said, illustrated two, two more of our nine strategies. The first one, uh, and the one that frankly surprised us the most, is that he sought out help from other people. Now, the reason that was surprising is because we, I mean, these were the experts. These were 20, 25 outstanding leaders, emotionally intelligent leaders. And yet here was one of them saying, you know, what I did in this situation that made the difference was reaching out to a coach. Um, and, and he really helped me. The other uh, strategy he illustrated um, was modifying the interpersonal boundary as a way of managing emotions. You know, a lot of the leaders we interviewed, and, and I know a lot of uh, you who are listening to this, have good strategies, sort of internal cognitive strategies for managing your, your emotions. And, and he was using those, he had those. But no matter what he did, trying to, you know, tell himself this isn't the end of the world, or, you know, I can really handle this, or, um, uh, it didn't work. Well, another strategy that many of the leaders used was to change the interpersonal boundary. In this case, what he did was to create an interpersonal boundary that was really rigid and that involved having a, another person uh, totally 
go and interact with this customer and negotiate the boundary. So um, those um, are some examples of uh, the kinds of incidents that we came up with in, in the book and uh, the strategies that uh, we emerged with. So I think I'm about out of time. Is that, are you keeping track well, of the about, time? That's about Trump? right, uh, Carrie. But Ready you know, Carrie, could you uh, just tell people how they might access your book if they wanted to get the, get a copy of the book? And also about the consortium website. Absolutely. Another place that they can learn. I, I, I will do that. Those are the, 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 the two best resources I can think of at this point. Uh, the consortium uh, website is eiconsortium.org. EI Consortium is, is one word. Uh, and there are a lot of resources uh, on that site. Uh, and if we have more time later on uh, and someone's interested, I can talk a little bit more about the consortium and what that is. As far as the book goes, uh, the title, as Chuck mentioned before, is Leading with Feeling, Nine Strategies of Emotionally Intelligent Leadership. Uh, published by Oxford. Uh, you can get it uh, from Amazon. Uh, my co-author is Cornelia Roach. If you just, you know, type in the title or just type in Chernus and Roach, uh, you'll get to it right away uh, through your search engine. Thanks. thanks, Gary. Thanks a lot. And thanks for giving some concrete examples of how that works. I think the way you uncovered those strategies, for anybody that's a leader out there, I highly recommend taking a look at that book for understanding the things that you're already doing, for one, and also to see other ideas that may help you be even a better leader. I want to talk and move yeah. to Helen, Helen Reese now. And uh, as I mentioned, Helen is uh, sort of um, one of the world's best researchers and, and probably the, 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 ex, the expert um, on, on empathy these days. Um, and she's got a very rich background, which I'll read in a minute. But because she practices in healthcare and she's a psychiatrist, and I'll tell you more about her in a moment, I just wanted to say a little bit about another really interesting footnote or, or sort of an aside about emotional intelligence is again, most of us think emotional intelligence is about relationships, but it's also about objects. And you don't often think about that as a, another part of the model of emotional intelligence is to think about emotion and objects. And let me give you a concrete example of how that has an impact also. So at one point I was working with a number of hospitals and one of them was St. Elizabeth's, which is in Brighton, Massachusetts. And St. Elizabeth's Hospital had a general manager who came in to take over the reins of that hospital from the hospitality, the hotel industry. And he had this concept that he felt that people who come to a hospital and see a hospital setting are really fearful. They come in afraid. They're very anxious, fearful that they might never go home. And so one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to change the way people felt when they came into St. Elizabeth's. And because of his hospitality industry background, he decided I want to make the lobby look like a fancy, luxurious hotel where people are coming to go on a short vacation. And so he worked with architects and he worked with designers and he actually went about changing the face of that lobby. And so the lobby doesn't look like most hotel lobbies. Now, I don't know if there's any research to support this notion that that had a different outcome on patients. But I do know, and if you're interested, you can write to me and I'll send you a copy of the chapter I wrote for the International Coaching Federation on 
how successful coaches influence feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. Because if you believe and understand how feelings do influence your self-talk and influence your behaviors, then people coming into St. Elizabeth's feelings were going to change just by their environment and the emotion in those objects. So let me tell you about Helen, who really knows about healthcare and about empathy. Helen, uh, Helen Reese, uh, Dr. Reese is a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She directs the empathy program at Massachusetts General Hospital. In 2012, Dr. Reese founded empathetics.com, an organization that provides evidence-based empathy and communication skills training for healthcare, law enforcement, business, and education. Dr. Reese appears regularly on podcasts and programs on the topic of empathy and emotional intelligence. Her TEDx talk, The Power of Empathy, TEDx, has been viewed nearly 600,000 times. Her new book, The Empathy Effect, has been licensed in 10 foreign countries and translated into Korean, Polish, and Italian, and an audiobook. Dr. Reese and her teams are dedicated to transforming organizational systems into compassionate care systems. Her research has been published in leading medical journals, and she has won numerous awards. And I would just add that she is also one of the most empathetic people I know. <laughs> so Helen, you're up next. Chuck, thank you for that really lovely introduction. Um, I especially liked the last thing you said. Uh, so uh, we're together this evening because we're talking about why emotional intelligence is needed now more than ever. I think we can all agree that we are living in very strange times where the rules of how we connect have completely changed. Piling on to extreme political tension, racial and economic inequality that's roiling our country, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought about changes in how everyone connects at home, at work, and at play. Many business leaders and sociologists agree that even when the pandemic is finally under control, and um, we're hoping that will be sooner than later, that our work and home lives will never go back to way they were just one year ago. The barriers to connecting because of social distance, working from home and relying on virtual platforms has led to new norms and new challenges. As a clinical psychiatrist and empathy researcher, I was struck by the number of my patients who were reporting that they felt that their doctors really didn't care and weren't that interested in whether they followed their guidelines or not. And about 10 years ago, this was a resounding theme that led me to really question, is a lack of empathy actually harming our patients? Because people were forgetting about their weight loss programs, they were unmotivated to continue to try to stop smoking. And this sense of people not connecting and not caring was really having profound effects on my patients. Um, and so I wanted to answer the question, are we beating empathy out of doctors because of the new time constraints, the productivity requirements, the electronic health record that has them looking at computer screens more than their patients? And if we can beat this quality out of people, can we actually put it back in? Can we upregulate what we're downregulating? So this led to um, 
taking time off to do uh, a neuroscience fellowship in the study of empathy where that topic was just exploding um, in the neuroscience literature. And my goal was to see whether if we understood how the brain worked with empathy, whether there were ways that we could actually train doctors and nurses to reconnect in meaningful ways. So this project took many years, but it, it, uh, it ultimately led to conducting a randomized control trial at Mass General Hospital in six different specialties where we trained uh, a randomized selection of 100 physicians who were uh, sorted by computer as to whether they would get the training or not. And we asked patients to rate the doctors before any training took place, and then again after the training period. And with a brief intervention, we got significantly higher patient ratings of physician empathy and compassion. Now, this is important on every level, most importantly, because it also connects with healthcare outcomes. And my team at MGH also conducted a systematic review and a meta-analysis of every randomized controlled trial that claimed that just manipulating relationship factors, connection, empathy, and things like goal setting did that actually correlate to improved health outcomes? And it turns out that it did. In 13 very rigorous studies, we found that purely relationship-oriented training led to improvements in obesity, uh, pulmonary infections, asthma, medically unexplained illnesses, and hypertension and diabetes. So if people think we're just talking how, about how to be nice, just to be a little nicer, as Chuck started our program, we're talking about something way more important. And our research group also were interested in, did we just get improvement in patient ratings of warmth and kindness? What about competence? So we conducted another study with over a thousand analog patients showing them videos of empathetic care versus detached care. And we had them rate those videos on warmth and competence. And we found that by showing empathy, you increase ratings of physician and nurse competence, not just uh, whether they're warm and friendly. So it really is a key driver to embedding trust in the relationship which leads to better adherence to medical recommendations. So what exactly is empathy? We use this term all the time, and um, it's not just being nice. It's really not just one thing. It's actually a capacity. It's a human capacity that enables us to perceive the suffering of others, to process that perception, and it motivates a response. Now we know that every time we're moved by something that is uh, troubling or where somebody's in trouble, we don't always act. So empathy is a motivator and whether we act or not is the demonstration of compassion. Empathy is really at the cornerstone of all four quadrants of emotional intelligence 
which includes self-awareness, other awareness, self-management and relationship management. But empathy is most necessary for awareness of other people's emotions. Without empathy, the ability to assess the emotions of others just remains a cold observation of another person's emotions without any full human engagement. The risk is that people are regarded more as objects or as functions to carry out their jobs and less as living, breathing humans who join together to form larger living organisms that is their workplace or their social place. Empathy is not just about feeling warm and kind. It has both emotional and cognitive components. We have emotional empathy when we're moved by other people's suffering. When we hear that someone has a child who's very sick or a parent who is on their deathbed, we are moved to offer help or to show interest or say a kind word. So empathy, we're hardwired for this capacity because it connects us in a, in a connected fabric of human experience. But there are challenges to empathy. When employees miss deadlines or show up late or use a snarky tone, it's easy to be put off and move to judgment, frustration, and anger. This is where emotional intelligence, curiosity, and cognitive empathy come in. Cognitive empathy is also called perspective taking. And it just means getting the perspective of others. And it means removing your own eyeglasses. And so you're not just looking through your lens, but you actually put somebody else's glasses on and try to see the world from their point of view. At this time when employees are not interacting or even seeing one another on a regular basis, when we only have half of a masked face to connect with and work lives have been challenged by childcare and other responsibilities, it's more important than ever to broaden the aperture through which we view other people. Instead of a healthcare example, I'm, I thought I would share uh, an example of how empathy imbues emotional intelligence from um, a coachee that, I'm, that I've been working with. Um, I have disguised the names and actually all of the particulars of the incident, but um, I think you'll see the relevance of how empathy enters into emotional intelligence. So at around 8.30 one night, I got a surprise call from a man that I'm coaching called Bill. He called my cell phone and he was very apologetic about the time of night and didn't want to bother me, but he said he was extremely triggered by an email from a person at his level who um, he had asked for some help on a, on a very complicated new coding system. And the response was, just go figure it out yourself. And um, saying, I don't have time for hand-holding these people anymore, or for you for that matter. So this, this was um, really triggering because this behavior from this man called Jack had been going on for at least six months. And Bill was getting coached to try to 
learn how to really increase self-management and how to um, how to work with emotional triggers. So he was very, very um, motivated to send a retort email back because he was so angry at the continued disrespect. And his um, his normal confidant wasn't available or he probably would have just vented and gotten to a similar place. But he knew that sending any email right then could could be um, could be dangerous. So I was happy that he called because what he really first needed was self-empathy. He needed his own upset and frustration at this bad treatment to be understood, to be uh, validated, where he could calm down and know that his reaction was normal. So when people are very emotionally upset, instead of telling them what to do, first we have to listen and really listen for validating why they're upset. Once that happens, the emotional valence really drops. And one of the great lessons that I try to pass on is never engage in any kind of email exchange when you're emotionally triggered. And never get into anything after 8.30 at night because it usually never goes well. And then both people often have a sleepless night. So the first thing we did was just really emphasize how important it was not to respond. And that actually took some pressure off because the need to respond um, and to get it just right kind of went away, knowing it, it could wait till the morning. So Bill knew he was triggered and he wanted to act, but he was showing self-awareness enough to make a call, knowing he had all of this emotional intensity that needed to be dissipated. So venting is a terrific way to calm ourselves down before we engage with someone with whom we're in conflict. So after the self-empathy and, and sort of calming down and feeling validated, he was open to some perspective taking. So I asked him to take off his eyeglasses and start seeing what was going on through Jack's point of view. And um, he said, I know he's really overloaded and member of his team just quit and he's responsible for getting out a whole new product. Um, I said, is there anything else going on? And he said, well, he's mentioned a few times that he's having marital trouble because there's a huge difference in how he and his wife are handling the COVID restrictions. I can personally attest to the fact that when a couple is not in alignment about how to handle mask wearing, washing, um, and also social restrictions, it's a, it's a very, very uh, uh, fraught situation. So when Bill finished talking about Jack, he said, you know, maybe this isn't about me at all. And so this is a really important point. When we are the target of really uh, offensive, disrespectful, sometimes very charged up behavior, it's really hard not to take it personally. 
But what we are experiencing is how that person reacts to being emotionally overloaded. And it's probably what they do in any situation. It's not that personal. And one way to think about it is like getting mail that's addressed to occupant. Everyone's getting the same mail. It doesn't matter what your name is or where you live. That same piece of mail is going to everybody. And once we realize that we're just getting the target of, we're the target of how that person reacts in a, in a triggered situation, it's much easier not to take it personally. But it also doesn't mean that we then excuse it and let it go. So the next day, Bill called Jack and asked him, just how are you doing? So instead of sending a nasty email, he actually showed interest and curiosity. He listened to what Jack said, he empathized. And when Jack was finished, Bill calmly said that his emails were coming across in a way that was disrespectful and distracting from the work they were both trying to get done. Jack apologized and they agreed to bring the problem of his overloaded schedule to the company manager. Bill had moved from judgment and resentment to compassion for Jack. So I'm gonna just conclude by saying that the COVID pandemic has frayed most people's nerves to some extent. Emotional intelligence requires that we factor that in into how we understand people's behaviors and think about how to help to support ourselves and others. Simple things like making eye contact. So I noticed when Carrie was speaking, he looked like he was looking at us, but it actually means we have to look at the camera instead of looking down. So we can train ourselves to toggle between looking at the camera and maybe looking at our screen if we're sharing a screen to, to remember that people love that, that target of, um, of being seen. And so we can incorporate that into our practices. Um, we can... Um, really make the most of emotion expression through the eyes. It turns out that the eyes are much more authentic in expressing our emotions than our smiles because we can all fake smiles, but it's very hard to fake um, like the true happiness that you get when it's a genuine smile. So there's a lot of reading we can look for in whether people's eyes are downcast, whether they're lit up, whether they're sparkling. So we have these tools and my book, The Empathy Effect, um, it is, the byline is seven neuroscience-based keys to transform the way we live, love, work, and connect across differences. And I explain in the book these seven keys for how we can really augment the ways we connect with others. We are at a time when, um, we are needing to recognize that when we catch negative emotions from others, we need to step back and try to understand what's happening. It will help us connect rather than separate us from people that we need to work with and live with. And it will help to make a very challenging period, one that we can all learn and grow from. Thanks very much, Ellen. I'm Chuck Wolf. You've been listening to WPKN 89.5 FM, listener-supported radio. This was a broadcast that was done with Harvard Alumni Association in Connecticut, and was open to many different people. Next week, you'll hear the remaining um, participant was Richard Boyatzis, and you'll hear from Richard 
and you'll also hear uh, the interaction among the panelists. So that'll be part two. Thank you all for listening, and I hope that you understand a lot more about the power and the breadth of emotional intelligence and how it can influence our lives. Take care.